Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. There's Andy Wood. Hello. Hey, Andy. Congrats on week two of the Jim Jeffries show. Thank you. And it's funny you should mention that because our guest today is yet another writer from the Jim <laughs> Jeffries show. Slight pattern. <laughs> how strange. This is how strange that when we record straight after leaving work, it seems like a natural thing for me mm. to grab one of the many funny mm. people from the office. It's Lucas Kavner. Hi, everybody. Hey, man. How's it going? Oh, it's great. Good to be here on the science show that you've talked so much about. <laughs> <laughs> We've been trying to set this up for a while. You, yeah. keep, you, you keep having a life. I know. Well, my wife is impregnated with a child, which oh. means the post-show, you mind if I go do a quick podcast? <laughs> well, I don't see you all week. Yeah, it doesn't always go as well, but today I got out. Woohoo! Sweet, sweet freedom. You didn't tell her about the pay, and then she would have been like, "Oh yeah, of course." Yeah, go no, do that she podcast. knows. Yeah, I should have told her about the sweet cash. Yeah, um, but I'll, I'm saving the that for myself. Sweet cachet <laughs> of having done a podcast. <laughs> sweet cash. Hey. hey. <laughs> Is that like Canadian money? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Okay. That's what. That's right. Or yeah. Fonz money. I don't know which it would be like. Cash, eh? The Fonz from... Uh, why am I over-explaining a dumb joke? <laughs> you know the Fonz. Um, guys, guys, yeah, yeah, the Fonz. Yeah, yeah. The Fonz. Arthur Fonzarelli. You guys have heard of Fonz, him. The uh, nicest guy in Hollywood plays him. Um, yeah. Which Fonz? <laughs> Which are the Fonzes? I can't believe someone hasn't rebooted Happy Days, considering everything has... Have you guys seen Riverdale yet? No. It's like a dark reimagining but would it, of the But Archie would the reboot universe? of Happy Days be cur- like current times? Because it would otherwise it would just have to be back in... The well, that's the weird thing. Is like now we're 50s. already like two. Well, Happy Days two, was set in the fifties, right. and it was made in the eighties, seventies. Right. So maybe now it was it made would in be the seventies. Okay. It's always a twenty-year window. So that seventies show was a nineties show, and now we're twenty years past the nineties. So it would be a ninety. It would be a show about the nineties, or it could be a show set in the nineties about a show. I mean, you could make it like four levels deep if you wanted to, <laughs> or you could just bring it back. Like Riverdale is the Archie world, but it's today and it's dark and there's a, it's a murder mystery. Have you heard about Riverdale? What's yeah, Archie? Yeah. Like, as in the comic strip? Archie yeah, comics. like Benny okay. and Veronica and Archie. It's like a sexy Archie. <laughs> it's like a Twin Peaksy slash... Is it uh, Twin Peaksy? It's slightly... I mean, it's trying to be super dark, but it's also, oh. I guess, like... Um, what's the show? Gossip Girl? Is that what it's like? I haven't seen that, but someone compared Somewhere it to some Somewhere between show. Gossip Girl, Twin Peaks, yeah. and Happy Days. That's probably the elevator pitch. That's yeah. how it got sold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's Gossip Girl meets Twin Peaks meets Happy Days. Makes get sense it. to me. I get it. Yeah. Right. Do you want to make uh, 20 or 40 immediately? <laughs> Is it good, though? Do you like it? Uh, wait, Riverdale? Riverdale? No, no, not at all. <laughs> I watched one episode and I was like, this is not for me. I don't have to keep watching this just because I read the Archie comics growing up. Uh, it's, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's for the teens. Um, I'm not going to watch 13 Reasons Why either. Um, I started that. I just couldn't get past the idea that she made cassette tapes. It was just like, are you trying set, to be... It's set today. It's set today. You know this, the plot of this uh, The only thing I know about it is because I, I've seen the first two paragraphs of several think pieces about why... <laughs> it's problematic. Yeah, about why it sort of glamorizes or at least presents suicide in a very 
bad yeah. way. But right. my big problem with it was it was the cassette tapes. It was just <laughs> the fact that she makes cassettes to hand out to everybody, and like this one, guy, like he has to go find like a Walkman, and so it was like is either she was like. Just trying to do like something very emo, or she was poor, but she wasn't like a I hipster. Not get past. I she wasn't she, cool enough to be into cassettes like no, the way that a. It didn't feel like that. So, you know, some, or, or just enough labels. of a Scar fan because they still trade cassettes. Who? Do, oh, Scar. Yeah. Scar. Well, there's you know indie, there's any labels. There that was only a big side right Scar now. story to Thirteen Reasons Why. <laughs> I remember this was about. 10, 12 years ago, trying to find a cassette player in in North London. Yeah, because we had. Um, um, friend of the show Nick Doody had ver- a few tapes like comedy tapes and he also had he taped an interview with Bill Hicks when he was a student oh yeah we talked about I this I think we talked about this a while ago but yeah he, he was a student and had just started doing comedy and Bill Hicks was playing Oxford and he ended up wow. getting him to do an interview But and he taped that interview on just on a cassette he sort of with this sort of rigged up cassette recorder and the f- phone that was in the hallway of the students hall of residence and so we had this interview with bill hicks that had never been heard and we we're like we want to play this and get this out there yeah no one we could find had a cassette player oh, and, and just even there was like this really high-end hi-fi sh- sh- store opposite where we lived and they had like one cassette player but it was 200 pounds it was ridiculous and then there was this other store that was around the corner that had various electronic things, but was definitely a front for some kind of Russian mob thing. <laughs> That's what most cassette stores are at this point. There's this shop. It, it might still be there. If, if look it up, I don't know. It's just at the bottom of Crouch Hill, North Londoners. Okay. And, and it never had anyone in it. And it was in not particularly cheap real estate. And there's just and all it had was sort of electronic goods from the 80s. Yeah. And we went in there and like asked where they had a cassette player, and the guy was like, "Huh?" <laughs> just like when you walk, just when you walk in, it's like actively surprised at the concept of someone walking into this building. Designed this who to wasn't... be a place that would turn off any potential customers. <laughs> yeah, you hear like, like six guns cock in the back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a poker game is just stopping. So like, everyone's being very quiet, and then you close the door, and then it all like the tables turn back over. Right, yeah. <laughs> just... the gimp comes back out from his box. Yeah. Uh, hey, Lucas, we always ask our guests this before we get started into the stories what if anything is your background in science well i did i was i didn't have any weirdly in high school i was bad at science but i was interested in it and i remember taking physics in college like first because i was like real i was like oh maybe i can get it because i've always been into it but i wasn't yeah. good at the math part of it uh-huh. and i remember my physics teacher in college like be going in after class because i didn't know how to do the math and he was like you know some people just don't do good at science and i was like thanks <laughs> physics professor but then i was still apparently he doesn't do well at grammar <laughs> like, yeah. it's just like... yeah, yeah. and those were his exact words yeah uh but then i do science good not word talk you word talk me science c plus <laughs> uh but then after school uh Weirdly, I started as a journalist, as a reporter for a long time, and I worked at the Huffington Post, and in my second year there, um, the someone who was covering, there was like someone covering the intersection of science and culture, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting, I'll start doing that, and so I wrote about science stuff for like two years mm-hmm. uh, while at the Huffington Post, and I became obsessed with the humanoid robot beat. <laughs> Of oh. the science and culture overlap, uh, yeah. and uh, wrote about a lot of robots while I was there. What what sort of um, like ones that can like walk like humans? Or Different what sort ones. Of- it was like military robots that sort of you know had 
per, you know, there's robots now that can perfectly, you know, mirror, walk and right. there's right. the videos that that company just DARPA, got Boston Boston Dynamics oh, yeah, yeah. just got bought from Google by some other company. Oh, Google owned Boston Dynamics. I think Google owned it wow. briefly, and now it's been bought by another company. Just so they can kick those robots. <laughs> yes, I'm sure they do have some use other than that. But I've sh- I'm sure most of you have seen the videos. But if you haven't, any listeners who haven't, look up Boston Dynamics, and they have these robots that look that walk on four legs, and scientists kicking them, right, very, and throwing things at them in various guys, including on ice. Well, I remember interviewing yeah. them and then being like, "We're ready for the mil- military is going to start using these things, and these things are going to be everywhere." And you're just like, <laughs> "I have never seen one of those robots in that's action in any capacity." Exactly. Right. But that's how good they are. No, to, that's oh. how, it's like oh, uh, right. <laughs> but you don't have dandruff. Bingo. Yeah, yeah. That's how good they are. They're just yeah. stealth. That's what was supposed to happen when the Segway came out. It was like it was supposed to be a game changer for how humanity moves its. I remember that. There were so many think pieces about the Segway. (laughs) Yeah, whereas it's just tour groups of mall cops. That's the only two people use it. And then just whoever hoverboards are for it. What is the stereotype? Vapors. Vapists. Vapists? What do you call someone who vapes? A vapist. Vapist. A a vapeman. Um, I, I have been on a Segway, though, and they are incredibly good fun. Oh yeah, as long as you don't step to the side. That's the biggest thing. Anybody who hasn't done one, t- you, oh, you go into a spin. If you try to, as long as when you get off and on, you you come on straight from the back. If right. you go, if you step to the left or right to get off of it, then it senses you're trying to turn and it whips around. I've got a video of Jimmy Dore eating it really hard at a festival <laughs> in DC, <laughs> trying to get off one. They gave us a free segue tour of DC when we did this festival at Tig that Tara ran a while back. The poster for which is right there. Oh. Um, yeah. The Benson Bowl. He's the not Bowl. lying, listeners. <laughs> I don't know why I have to prove with the wall that these are real things. Um, yeah, so don't ever get off to the side. But um, so yeah, humanoid beat. Oh yeah, so yeah, so then I would go. I would just I would hear about humanoid robots and interview robot designers and just became weirdly obsessed with them because at the time, I mean, every single one you talk to is just like, yeah, we're really close to you know, and, and I would go see these robots that were like, I mean, you're I was six feet away and you can't tell. You know the design of it is is just unbelievable. You can't now. tell that it's not a person, right. and then you get closer, and but they still haven't quite. You know, there's stuff they haven't figured out. I remember one robot designer was like, "Yeah, all we got left is empathy." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, that's the last frontier, then, isn't it?" <laughs> I'd have I'd have started with empathy, and we okay, we got everything you need. We've got yeah. we've got aggression. <laughs> we've got, yeah, yeah. yeah, all that's left is them, but you know caring about their own existence right. and then we're all destroyed but yeah they've i mean they've they've gone it feels like there's way more you know developments that is just amazing what has not been released but that they're able to do you know it's just like there's oh, like yeah? there was one in japan who like was brought to america and i went to this weird convention thing and it was like you could go you could tell the robot to go buy you a sandwich and it could like leave the convention center and go to subway and like buy you a sandwich and bring it back but it pockets half the change because of the no yeah. empathy thing. exactly yeah, yeah because yeah. they don't yeah. care they're just in it for the cash right. <laughs> like all robots those fucking robots <laughs> why'd they make them so greedy god scientists why'd yeah. you make why can't a ro- one robot be in it for the love of the I know. game I know. it's a shame one really. day uh hey you know who does have empathy or at least a sense of fair play who's that dogs and wolves dogs and oh, wolves interesting Dogs and wolves, a sense of fair play is an important human trait, but new research suggests it's a key behavior for dogs and wolves as well. 
in tests if one animal was given a more substantial reward. Actually, I think this is almost the other way around from empathy. This is more jealousy. But if one animal was given a more substan- substantial reward when performing a task, the other one downed tools completely. Hmm. Um... It, is, it has been felt that this aversion to unfairness was something that dogs had learned from humans, but the test with wolves suggests this predates domestication of dogs. Scientists have long recognized what they term a sensitivity to inequity, or a sense of fairness, played an important role in the evolution of cooperation between humans. Basically, if others treated you badly, you quickly learn to stop working with them. Can I pause for a second? Have you ever heard the phrase downed tools before right now? No, just okay, now. I great. don't know what it I, meant. I had to look it up because I'm like, is this a Britishism? Of course it is. I... <laughs> Every so often, and again, I've been here so long, and we've been yeah. doing this show for so, I would say probably every 20 episodes or so of the show, I'll say something or read something that Andy will go, that's not a thing we've ever heard. Yeah, it, It's an informal British phrase meaning to stop work, which makes sense. Like, uh, the union instructed its members to down tools, oh. but I've never heard that in my life. Wait, it's tools plural? Like, hey, hey, everybody, down tools. Oh. Like put down oh, your like tools. Down stop. Your w- tools. Stop working. I but, see. Yeah. What What were you thinking for a second? Well, I didn't know. It just didn't. It sounded like to down tool. I was thinking like down play. But then the pluralized word. Oh, made no okay. Sense to yeah, me. yeah. But actually, now when Andy yeah, just said yeah, yeah. that, now I got it perfectly. It's also how uh, British porn stars describe deep throating. <laughs> well, it's the same in America. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, Do you say windy pop? Was that a thing you used for fart? Like when you're five. When you're five. Only for what? a child. That was my, my, my mom is British, and oh, she would okay. say that I didn't that know that. Up, but yeah, yeah. We've, I've said Oh, maybe I didn't know that. Okay. You just, everything goes over your head at work because you're so self-involved. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they call him Down Tools Matt. He's never <laughs> doing any work. He doesn't get shit done. Uh, yeah. No, Matt is the best. Uh, but she, she used to say Windy Pop growing up, and then I would ask Brit- other British people, and they'd never heard that phrase. No, I definitely, I think it was something... I don't know if even my parents would. It's something like my grandparents might say, but but specifically, like it's kid talk. Yeah, that was a good phrase. I like it. Yeah, windy pop and down tools. I learned two things today <laughs> that I'm not going to use because no one will know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, Sorry. So yeah, when when one animal yeah. is given a reward. So researchers yeah. believe the behavior is also found widely in non-human primates. Experiments in 2008 demonstrated that dogs also had the sensitivity. This new study also shows it's deeply ingrained in wolves. The scientists tested similarly raised dogs and wolves that lived in packs. The animals of each species were placed in adjacent cages equipped with a buzzer apparatus. When the dog or wolf pressed it with their paw, both animals got a reward on some occasions. Other times, the dog or the wolf doing the task got nothing while the partner did. The key finding was that when a partner... When the partner got a high-value treat, the animal doing the task refused to continue with it. When the inequity was greatest, they stopped working, says Jennifer Esler from the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna. For some of them, it was a really quick and strong response. Whilst one of the wolves stopped working after the third trial of not receiving anything, (laughs) while his partner received something. I think he was so frustrated, he even broke the apparatus. The fact that the behavior was found in both wolves and dogs helps to overturn the idea that dogs learned this concept because they were domesticated. It suggests it's instead inherited from a common ancestor to both wolves and dogs. Um, So, yeah, it's more likely that it evolved from a common ancestor than to say it evolved twice or to say that it came from domestication, says Esler. Uh, The question of social status or hierarchy also played an important role in the experiments with dogs and wolves of higher rank taking umbrage more quickly. (laughs) Hmm... 
uh, yeah, that's very much like humans. The the more entitled you are, the more quickly you are likely to throw a strop when you don't get something that someone else gets. You know that American thing, throwing a strop? <laughs> <laughs> Two in an episode. Yeah. yeah. Three. Um, the human impact on dogs isn't entirely absent, though. Pet dogs are less sensitive to being treated unfairly probably because of their experience with us. <laughs> I think it's clear, says Esla, that... It, no this one's is... ever treated a wolf unkindly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I guess if you're a dog, you're sort of used to like, no, the people get the food first and then I get the scraps. Totally. Or... That's all dogs do all day is get sad that they can't have what the people are doing. <laughs> um, I think it's clear that it's affected by both domestication as well as their life experience with humans because you do see a difference between pets and pet-living dogs. Uh, it seems that having a life experience to live with humans makes them more tolerant to inequity that comes from humans. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been trying to... I think we've even talked about this on the show. I've been trying to write a bit, and it, I never managed to make it work, but just about how people feel about people who are doing slightly better than them, how that affects politics. Like, it, it's such a convoluted idea that I've never managed to get a handle on it. But just the idea that people get so furious, and it's all drummed up partly by tabloids and by right-wing press, yeah. about people cheating the benefit system, for example. They go like, oh, this welfare family who's got a house for free, and everyone's like, fuck you, welfare family. And even if, even if they're scamming the system, they've made at most like tens, maybe hundreds of thousands out of the system, but they don't get nearly as angry about a company that's conning the, the country out of billions yeah. in unpaid taxes. Totally. And I think it's the same as... This is the bit that I've never managed to make work. It's the same as if you're in the line for an event, like getting into a club or whatever, and if one person cuts just in front of you, you're furious at them. If they were just behind you and they edged just a little bit in front of you, you could not be more angry at that person. But if a limo pulls up to the front and they say something to the security guy and then they all go in in front of everyone... You're a little bit annoyed, but you're still like, ah, they know someone. Like, you're like, oh, yeah. they fucking did, they got in front of every, they that were guy the- earned that status. Yeah, that guy just fucking blew past everyone. This guy just slightly edged past me, but you're so much angry at the person who's just a little bit behind you and gets a little bit ahead of you than you are at the person. That's who- why I think rich people get, it, it's like wealth and status. We, uh, we somehow appreciate that as if it was like earned as opposed to like a welfare person who's like not doing anything and therefore they're yeah. like scrimping. The or you're like, that, that could be me. I guess there is a sort of element of like, yeah. I could be that person, but I could never be that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're saying you could be which one? You could be I the- could be the person who's behind me, just behind me in the line, who's now ahead of me because that we have, we have very similar status. Right. I thought you were saying the opposite where like I aspire to be that person up front some days. The same reason like someone Well, there is some of that as well. Absolutely. against tax increases for the rich because they're protecting their future selves who are they're obviously going to be rich eventually. So they want to make sure that like they have they have it all set up for when they get theirs. Well, that is like a that is like a very republic. Like, every Republican I knew in Texas growing up was all it was always about like my property, like pr- everything was proprietary. It was yeah. just like, this is my stuff and I'm like building it up. So when I'm done, like I don't have to do anything and I don't have to pay any taxes and this is mine. Right, and right. Nobody touches me and this is mine. <laughs> you know, like that's what it all comes down yeah. to for them. And, uh, yeah. The, you're right about the lower, the lower status people getting stuff. Like when it comes down to it, would you trade places with them with all the free stuff they're getting? Like you wouldn't, you know, their life is still this welfare cheater doesn't live the dream that you want like to not work and have a good no, life but it, they might it, not be working and they still have a shitty life like why are yeah you of course absolutely of yeah but you sort of like they're cheating me out of something right, that right. i can see as opposed to this 
like Starbucks that hasn't paid any tax on <laughs> billions in profits. And you're yeah. like, oh, like that's hundreds of thousands of houses that. Yeah, it's also the, that nobody like once you add aliens to something, it's all the same, like a million and a trillion. Yeah. To most people it just sounds like, oh, that's, that's a shit ton of money. I'm like, no, a trillion is a million times more than a million. Like that's <laughs> a fucking shit ton. But whatever. Um, you can't picture a trillion dollars. I can't, I can't, you can't picture a million dollars. Yeah. Like a million one, a million in ones. I, I remember seeing that. <laughs> I remember seeing that in like a National Geographic growing up. Like uh, what a million dollars in ones looks like, and it was like three radio flyer wagons filled up like six feet high, dragged to get like completely full. It's such a huge amount. Yeah, it's. Um, hey, you know what might make you more tolerant of other people's behavior? What's that? Eating a low carb breakfast. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think I saw this article. I just put it in the document. Oh, from the New Scientist. I don't. Um, well, this flies in the face of um, a piece that I worked on for last summer's um, Minefield about the origin of bacon and eggs being thought of as a breakfast food. It was just like a marketing thing that Beechnut did to drum up business for bacon. Well, bacon and eggs is low carb. Oh, lo- I was just thinking low calorie. Okay, forget it. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, a low carb bacon is low carb. I guess it's I all guess protein. It right? Yeah, it's all, all yeah. it's all protein and fat. Fascinating. Um, okay. I thought I, I'm not sure there's much carb carbs in. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Uh, a low carb diet might do more than affect your health. It could make you a more tolerant person. See, this headline makes me very dubious. I'm I'm feels like this is very clickbaity, but new scientist generally doesn't go that clickbaity, but still. Um, Wait till you see the definition of tolerant. That'll be the the decision. Yeah, people who ate fewer carbs for breakfast made more forgiving decisions in a money-sharing game they played a few hours later. Extreme low-carb diet. (laughs) Who made that that test? Germans. (laughs) Uh, Extreme low-carb diets might be influencing people's behavior, says uh, Soyoung Park at the University of Lübeck in Germany. That sounds like a Korean name. If it's a Korean based in Germany. Why, doing why in Germany? can't yeah? What's what's your problem with? I'm just saying, like okay. a, a mixed German Korean thing. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Uh, this this could be because less starchy meals tend to have more protein, which boosts levels of dopamine in the brain involved in decision making. Standard advice is that we should base our meals around starchy carbohydrates such as bread, potatoes, and pasta. What do you mean standard advice is that? That hasn't been standard advice for a while, has it? I don't know. Okay, depends who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah. Low carbers tend to have a higher protein intake because they replace these foods with protein-rich meat, dairy, and nuts. Dietary protein affects the level of an amino acid that is a precursor to dopamine in our blood. Since increasing the amino acid increased dopamine and dopamine affects decision-making, Park wondered if a low-carb diet might change people's behavior. To find out, her team asked people to participate in the ultimatum game in which you were split into pairs. This is so similar to the wolf story. I, that's why I put them next to each other. Um, in which you're split into pairs and your partner is given some money and they decide how much to share with you. If you accept the offer, both of you get the cash. But if you regret it, no one gets anything. You're rejected. Wasn't that sorry, a British uh, game show? There was, there, have, there was a game show that was based around that. It was like... It was also sort of based around the prisoner's, prisoner's dilemma. dilemma. Yeah. Right, right. And yeah, there was a clip of that that went viral where the guy... Where the guy went, uh, I'm gonna just telling you, I'm gonna take it. So do with that knowledge what you will, but I'm gonna take it. And he's like, why don't you just say you share it? I'm gonna take it. <laughs> and yeah, then he goes, I'm gonna take it, and then I'm gonna share it with you. 
And then he goes, pick one of you. He said, I'm going to do it afterwards, right? Like, yeah. And he's like, well, why don't I just do it now? I was like, no, nope, I'm taking it. Because if they both said share, what happens? I think if they if they both share, then they get... They don't get anything? No, hang on a second. I think no, if they both share, they get to split it. But if one of them decided not to share and one picked share, then that person gets all the money, I think. Yes. Was that what it was? Yeah, and if... Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Because in the end, he she shared it. In the end, not to spo- not to spoil it, but I spoiled it, right? That was the twist. Is I think he so, lied? Yeah. He didn't do what he said he was going to do, which allowed them to share it. But I got to look it up again. There was another it. one where somebody completely screwed somebody over, and it was like shocking. That was the viral one I was thinking. Oh, okay. Was this like, one it was, was like a sweet person, and you like thought for sure, and they had like worked it out, and it was like five minutes of discussion, and then it was like, oh my! And people were like. Like just eyes, like it was just insane that this person who had just done this had like stolen all the money for themselves. Yeah, but like because it was just such a shitty move. <laughs> I can't I don't believe they never the made country. that for the U.S. That, I mean, it does seem like a slam huge. dunk because also yeah. people just get so, like in Survivor or whatever. People get so into the alliances and betrayals. Yeah. Uh, did, did I already talk about my game show thing on the podcast or not? No. What was that? <sighs> I spent the whole spring thinking I was going to be on Beach Shazam that just came out. <laughs> My friend and I, we found out about it from the trivia night we go to on Mondays, um, and my friend and I auditioned. We went through three rounds. We never missed a single question. They were in love with us, and then I got a call from one of the producers. Um, I didn't know it was one of the producers. He's like, hey, Andy, it's Brett, a guy I'd worked with on a show. He's like, guess what? I got bad news for you. I'm sitting here next to Jenna. Basically, there were four people on the show who I had worked with on other TV shows who were producers and que- even like researchers. Like Riley Newton was writing questions for it, so there were four people who meant my friendship with them meant that I couldn't do the show. Yeah. So I've been watching it now and Jamie Foxx hosts it as a million dollar pot and they kept telling us as we were auditioning like okay we, we can't say how much this is for but like it's a life changing amount of money oh, and man. again we hadn't missed a single question like there was so and it wasn't even that hard because like we got stuff like Sailing by Christopher Cross so like how'd you get that I'm like it's fucking Sailing by Christopher Cross it's a hit yeah. also most of the game's not Beat Shazam at identifying songs it's like Beat Shazam at car washing right, right. <laughs> interesting yeah. 100 yard dash yeah um, I have a bunch of friends who have been on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire apparently it's not I guess people don't apply as much now to go on it. Oh, it's still but on the air. Each one, like over, like a few of them have won like a hundred twenty thousand dollars or Jesus. something. Yeah, like I, this is the second time this in the, in the last six months that I tried out for a game show and was the other time my partner had been on other game shows, so they didn't let us on. And I'm like, oh, so it's basically impossible for me to ever get on a game show, which is really all sure that I want to do in of life. The murder in your background check it could be the murder. <laughs> the background murders might be a thing, but I, I, I think it's inevitable that like there's going to be someone involved in the production. LA being a small town, who I know and will keep me from being eligible. And so. also that meme that you put out that's got your face and it just says, "Put me on a quiz show, I kill your family." Yeah, I don't know why that didn't that do better for me. Why did you do that? That was weird. I did that. It's a weird choice. I was outside of really Jamie Foxx's house <laughs> with a knife in my teeth. Uh, yeah, it's weird they didn't respond to that. Uh, I forgot where we were on this. I, the I, ultimatum I, game. So, yes, okay. So you are split into pairs, and your partner is given some money, and they decide how much to share with you. If you accept the offer, you both get the cash, but if you reject it, no one gets anything. So in theory, people should always accept, because even a small sum is better than nothing. But in practice, people often reject low offers. We seem to have an urge to punish those who split the money unfairly, even if we suffer a small loss. It may reflect urges to deter antisocial behavior. It's trying to punish cheaters, and it's supposed to foster a good society. So it's really similar to this whole wolf-dog evolution thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
First, Park's team asked 87 people what they had for breakfast this morning and then got them to play the game. Again, 87 people, that's a relatively low sample size. Those who had eaten a low-carb meal were more likely to accept unfair offers. 76% did so, compared with 47% of the high-carb group. They then asked 24 people to come in for breakfast before paying several rounds of the game on two different days. The volunteers ate either a high-carb meal, including bread, jam, and fruit juice, or a low-carb one, including ham, cheese, and milk, and then they switched meals on the second day. They found, the team found people were more forgiving after a low-carb meal, accepting about 40% of unfair offers compared with 31% after the high-carb breakfast. Since low-carb meals can affect our body in many ways, such as causing less of a blood sugar spike, the team took blood samples from the volunteers to work out what caused the effect. When they measured the levels of the precursor dopamine, a compound called tyrosine, they found the low-carb meal raised people's tyrosine more, and the high tyrosine correlated with forgiving behavior. There was no such link seen with a range of other blood measurements, including glucose. I wonder, is, is dopamine... I always forget which substances affect which neurotransmitters, I think but... dopamine is like Coke and things like... Is uh, it alcohol, a dopamine-related substance? I don't know or not? what alcohol Dopamine does is like in when you eat turkey and it, like you... No, that's trip. tryptophan. That's tryptophan. <laughs> Wait, but it is cocaine. Okay, so I mean, by this logic, are, are cokeheads super generous? Like I'm not really kidding. Like if you're high on on something that gives you, that floods a, your brain with dopamine in a certain way, does that make you more selfless? They're certainly like guessed... generous with the hugs that turn into like <laughs> headlocks. <laughs> generous with making plans they're never going to follow through on. Yeah, yeah. We should we should just totally we should go, go to, we should go we should go to Cobb. We could be there in three hours. Yeah, we're gonna write a movie. We're gonna um so. Yeah, the euphoric effects of alcohol and most other abused drugs are associated with the amount of, neuro- of dopamine in, this blo- in the brain sinuses. Oh, okay. Um, so it does affect it. Uh, dopamine might have this effect because it's involved in signaling that we have experienced a reward. Perhaps hi- people with higher baseline dopamine levels from their breakfast found a lower sum of money-, money offered by their partner more satisfying and were therefore more likely to find their low offer acceptable. That speculates Park. On the other hand, people could accept lower offers for other reasons. They may feel less aggressive, says Park, or even more rational, since accepting low offers is economically the right thing to do. But irrespective of why, people's breakfast did seem to be changing their behavior. Uh, so you should eat a really high-carb breakfast and go play the stock market? Yep. <laughs> it just it seems like it's, it's less about tolerance, so to try to tout with the headline, and more just about not giving a shit. Uh, this is kind of how I read it. Oh, right? like because if you eat high carbs, that means you don't give a fuck. No, the opposite. No, no, oh. no. Like, like the dopamine satisfies you and makes you not give a shit. So you you accept these lower offers, which you could you could spin it like they're not. They're saying they don't know the exact reason why. You could argue you're being more tolerant or sharing. But you could also argue you're just like chill as fuck with whatever the outcome is. So you're like, yeah, whatever. I'm a little bit high on on these protein enhanced. Uh, on these, on the dopamine that came from the protein breakfast I had. Yeah, well, a previous, a previous study. Uh, so, firstly, someone from a uh, Bahadur Barami from the University of College London, University College London, said the diet does seem to affect people's decision making in this particular setting. But we don't yet know how much it changes other kinds of behavior. It's a very specific probe of human cost benefit analysis. We need the same to be shown in a number of other social decisions. He says, but a previous study found that judges were less likely to approve prisoners for parole just before their meal breaks. It was thought that this was because the judges felt hungry, but perhaps it was because they had low dopamine levels. Ah. I, well, those kind of are 
are correlated, right? Because they're saying that you yeah. would get the higher dopamine levels by uh, eating protein. So it's sort of the same thing. Yeah, that that, that was cited in, um, is it the Steven Pinker book, Thinking Fast and Slow? One of those, one of those kind of like sort of Malcolm Gladwelly books about how there is an actual like physiological cost to making decisions. Like it requires some glucose, like, like your brain needs fuel. And if you're, that's why when you're hungry, you're impatient and you're just like snippy and you don't take long to, yeah, like there is an actual cost to hard thought and it's harder to think right. well without enough food. Yeah. Um, uh, what do you want to do? I, I mean, we could... Oh, um, I, we have a bunch of great stories people sent in. We uh, do. We could start with, we got an email from a listener. We always love when listeners uh, actually work in some area of science. And I, th- I think I know the story you're about to do, because this is an <laughs> area we've, we've discussed. We've talked about the fact that uh, we want to talk to shit scientists. Like we asked if and there fecal are transplants. Any, are there any shit scientists? Not scientists who are shitty, but literally scientists. Fecal transplant? Yeah. Yeah. Is that so, a thing? So it, oh, yeah. it's an absolute thing. We've discussed it on the show numerous times um certain numerous times i mean seriously it comes up a lot it keeps coming up uh it's possibly can treat certain autoimmune diseases and sometimes people who's it seems more it seems in general more and more is being found out about the gut and the microbiomes and how much that can actually affect loads of issues loads of parts of uh, human health and behavior Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things and in certain cases if someone's micro someone's gut uh bacteria is off a fecal transplant which is basically exactly what it sounds like it's basically taking someone's shit and normally in some kind of pill form and then putting it it either as an enema or actually swallowed and can actually wait are you sure swallowing is one way swallowing is definitely one way oh, okay I didn't um but uh we just got this this wait, story so you swallow someone about the bacteria you see difficile yeah um and listener Peter Iper sent it in saying, I think this is an interesting story worthy of mention in the podcast. Uh, th- sorry, that I think this is an interesting story worthy of mention on the podcast is in no way due to the fact that I'm an author on the paper. <laughs> nice work, Peter. Uh, so I was like, Congrats, oh. Peter. Yeah, so I was like, um, what do you do on the... Uh, st- well, should we should we read the story first and then... Yeah, and then let's get into more. Get of into work. what what it is Peter did. You followed up to ask you, you obvious as as we should uh, to find out more about what he had done on this. So. Yeah, um, so, uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham researchers have made the first direct demonstration that fecal donor microbes remained in recipients for months or years after a transplant to treat the diarrhea and colitis caused by recurrent Clostridium difficile infections, a serious and stubborn cause of diarrhea after an antibiotic treatment for some other illness. Now, while clinicians have hypothesized that fecal microbiota transplantation, or FMTs, are successful because they restore missing microbial flora to the gut of a fecal transplant recipient, no one's directly shown colonization of specific microbial donor strains in recent patients or what those strains are. In two patients, the UAB group showed that certain donor microbial strains persisted as long as two years after an FMT. Five other patients showed persistence of donor strains in recipients for three to six months, the longest times tested after an FMT. Uh, to, detect, to detect the fates of donor microbial strains in recipients, um, a handful of doctors, the one we care most about being Casey Morrow, uh, Ranjit Kumar, Elliot Lefkowitz, and Martin Rodriguez, um, and their UAB colleagues developed a method that uses de- detection of single nucleotide variations in microbial genomes in combination with a new bioinformatics algorithm 
to identify related microbes. And then the slightly simplified description uh, of what that is from yeah, Kuma. It's a, it's a micro, microbiome fingerprint, essentially. Um, so the novel method may explain why FMTs for recurrent C. diff infections succeed 90% of the time at a greater rate than antibiotic therapy. And the method may also be able to warn of changes in the gut microbiota that may be associated with metabolic diseases like diabetes or obesity, as well as diseases like ulcerative colitis or Parkinson's disease. Um, see That's a wide range ahead. of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do they believe Parkinson's originates in the gut somehow? Well, the, Or just that it all is... Over the last few together? years, people have been saying, yeah, the, the, the gut biome does correlate with a lot more brain things. Yeah, than if not caused, before. at least reflected in it. Like, you might be able to detect stuff from changes in the gut, and it might also be driving these things. Hmm. Um, there's a quite a bit more detail, and I'm trying to see if there's a quick way of summarizing... So C. difficile infections have healthcare costs estimated in the billions of dollars. And despite the use of more powerful antibiotics to eliminate it, patients have a 20% rate of recurrence. And the risk of further episodes is even greater after a third recurrence. Uh, so FMT, again, just calling it FMT, have become an increasingly common treatment option for it, with a 90% success rate to alleviate symptoms and restore health. In the treatment, as much as a half pound of fecal material in a saline solution from a healthy donor is given to the patient through a nasogastric tube. Really? Okay. As in the current study, okay. or other routes such as colonoscopy. Rather so it's either that. up the ass or yeah. through the nose. I'd rather have, the, rather Take have your pick. a half pound of watery <laughs> shit through a nose tube uh, rather go colonoscopy route. Yeah. Do you reckon you have to snort it like a Coke? Oh, my God. <laughs> like a Coke. Like a Coke. Like a Coke. Like a single cocaine. <laughs> How many Cokes do you want? Yeah, so... Um, so, we, so we, yeah, we messaged uh, Peter back and said, hey, what do you do? Uh, Peter said, I do the grunt work in the lab of Dr. Casey Morrow, the guy on the left in the photo. I receive all the samples which are carried in by hand from cl- clinicians and researchers on campus or are FedEx to us from around the country. My job so those is- are solicited FedExes. I don't think they accept. Um, yes, just like cold call. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just either they're really trying to help, or they're very much against what we do. Yeah. My job is to log and curate them. I process them so they can be stored long term in freezers. Then I extract the bacterial genomic DNA from the samples and use that in uh, polymerase chain reaction amplification of a specific segment of the bacterial genome. I further process and purify it, and then hand it to our DNA sequencing facility. They determine for each sample the DNA sequence of the 150 base pair segments for each individual bacterial cell in the sample, which can be several thousands of different species of bugs in the sample and many copies of each species. Then around 100 samples are run in a batch, yielding around 100,000 reads. This is shitloads. (laughs) That was even unintentional. (laughs) Reads of DNA sequence. The enormous computer file, which is then generated, is sent to Ranjit Kumar, our bioinformatician. He runs the computer that analyzes the raw data and produces whatever outputs or graphs and charts the researcher may need. Uh, most of the samples we analyze are fecal samples, but we can look at any bacteria. So we worked with a variety of human-derived samples, saliva, urine, various other bodily fluids. Thanks for not going specific on mm-hmm. that. Dental swabs, nasal washes, and lung aspirates. Then there are a number of non-human sources, dissected rat tissues, experimental zebrafish, tick glands, and gut parts from sea urchins, to name a few. <laughs> Microbiome is a what re- a fun office that must yeah. be. Yeah, and then he says microbiome is a real hot field of research right now. I say that as a former HIV researcher. 
He knows that of which he speaks. Moving from HIV to gut bacteria. When you're tired of the HIV, you know where you can go. And I always... (laughs) I always thought, you know, when a man is tired of HIV, he's tired of life. But apparently... (laughs) I wonder if Peter knows that, like, this would have been a perfect job for Howard Hughes. Just, like, cataloging excrement with extreme attention to detail. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't say whether long fingernails or anything. (laughs) Yeah, well, this... uh, all this research, it's full of shit, but I say that in the best possible Does, way. Do you think that makes you just obsessed with your own body and your own shit in ways? Like, do you think people that study this stuff, like, every single time they do anything, they're just, like, obsessed with, it makes you obsessed with your own and you anatomy? Wonder, well, I wonder if I have good shit, you know? like I've I, always, <laughs> I've all, I've, like, like, <laughs> even, like, with my wife a couple of times, I've been, like, should we like look at each other's shit just once, just to see what the deal is? Like, because <laughs> you've never, I've looked, you know, you've like maybe a couple times you've seen like something foul in like a public restroom, but like yeah. a friend, you don't often be like, I don't want to, I don't think I want to know that about anybody know? else. I don't know. I mean, I think maybe I do. Once. <laughs> I have, I think I have known about some of my. I, I, do we want to go down this? No, <laughs> we don't have to talk about yeah, this. Yeah. I'm very sorry. Um, that's interesting though, because I, I do wonder if I have good. Um, if I have some of the good stuff in terms of like having a pretty, pretty good metabolism for my age, like I don't know how much that's genetic or lifestyle based. Well, that that's what definitely one of the things that some of this research has suggested that the ability to keep a fairly constant weight or people who end up putting on weight, a lot of that might be down to gut bacteria. Right. Hmm. Yeah. They've, there've been other studies showing people losing weight when they do one of these transplants. Wow. With a skinny, to get a skinny person's shit up in you, and uh, suddenly it'll be the next up. thing in Silicon yeah. Valley. Just the next, oh yeah, the skinny next fad. Shit.com. Yeah, and we talked about why people couldn't just start doing this themselves, like back alley style, because it's not you know surgery. But I guess it would it would be like it should be subject to the same standards as as restaurants at least, you know, because right. you can't sell like dangerous foods people will put inside their body, even though it's not actual surgery um you're saying there should be back alley fecal transplants well i was wondering why people haven't just started doing it i think they have really yeah i think they have i mean i'm sure like naturopaths do it you know well there's there's like colonics which have been i think science is against pretty solidly against yeah it generally it generally does nothing and it's often bad to wash like the good bacteria out of you and it Uh has none of the same with any kind of detox I told you about my. We've talked on the show before yeah, about my cool. one colonic irrigation experience. Yeah. You don't and you to. don't believe it was uh, helpful for you? No, it, I I did it because I thought I was bored in a town when I was doing comedy and I had nothing to do that day and I had to keep. There was a colonic place that was in between the apartment that the club put us up in and the gig, so I walked past it every day and I was that's like, just just that one place. And I genuinely, that's all it was. Uh, no, I just kept walking past it and I, and I thought. Well, you know what? I bet I'll get a bit out of this. I bet I'll get a few minutes of material out of it. And it was just horrible and unpleasant, and I got nothing. Not a single joke. I just got a really uncomfortable, unpleasant time. How much did it cost? I don't remember now, but it was, it was, it was, it was I think, about 40 pounds, if I had to guess. That's a fair amount. 
I got but a, for the same amount in the same location, they have flotation tanks, which is a lot better. Yeah, I got a colonoscopy uh, a few years ago, and I, you know, you have to drink the fluid. You do the whole horrible yeah. thing the night before, and then that morning, I didn't know. I knew you weren't supposed to eat, but I didn't know you couldn't drink water. So I drank water before, and they're like, "Have you drank any water today?" I was like, "Yeah, I had some water." They're like, "I'm really sorry," and I was like, literally about to go under, and I'd done the whole fucking thing, and I was just like. You know what? I'm just gonna go for it. <laughs> they were like, "This could be dangerous." I was like, "I'm not doing the the, the prep again." What was the danger of? Yeah, it's anesthesia. It's anesthesia. Oh, this. I'm just talking to people who have had colonics in sorry colonoscopies in the U.S. In the U.S., for some reason, it tends to be done under general anesthetic. They put you under. They don't do that in the U.K. I've had a couple in the U.K. because my my dad had colon cancer. Just just every five years, my like they're like, "Well, oh, you should have a colonoscopy just to check." Because it's the type he had is hereditary. Yeah. So I've had two of them now, and both times, no, they just give you if you if you ask for it, they'll give you a sort of a sedative. Or one time they just gave me a sedative, and the other time they gave me nitrous. Oh. Like nitrous oxide. But again, it was like um. But do you pass out? No, nitrous. You're just sort of giddy and don't really feel or notice pain or discomfort. Did you notice and then, any sensation of something inside you? Like oh, yeah. Well, also I. At first, I was like, oh, I don't think I need it. And then uh, about... Because they, they said it's optional, so I didn't have anything at first. And then off, after about five minutes, I was like, I want the stuff. <laughs> I Jesus. want this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> As it slowly Ooh. inches up, yeah. Because it was... Yeah, it was very... Ugh. Every it, five it, years? It was the point it? at which it sort of like... I could feel it... Like, I could feel it sort of around, like, under my rib cage. Like, oh, that's really weird. That's weird. Feels weird. Don't like it. It's uncomfortable. Uh, so then I got the nitrous. But then it was like... I've had nitrous oxide before just from a balloon just like a like <laughs> a party but this was like pure nitrous mixed with air on a mask that they just gave to me and they just went just keep doing it so i was just like high on nitrous for 20 minutes and then they went and the good thing about nitrous is it clears your system really quickly so they're like yeah you're good to drive like 15 minutes after this Oh. They just. Why don't you drive now? <laughs> yeah, and there's no lingering pain from it, from inside once that wears off. There actually was for this time, and I, I was worried that Ugh. they caught something, but I don't think with in the morning. I think they had. And um, do you know if those colonoscopies where you just swallow a camera are just as good? You know those uh, ones. I don't know, Never but that's that. a new thing. Yeah, they they sent it's like a pill sized camera. Like yeah. I iPhone, think they can check. F- yeah, what's that? You swallow the iPhone. <laughs> exactly Seven. that. They um. <laughs> Well, the th- the thing about this colonoscopy, though, is they he could sort of look around. the The doctor was looking around and like keep realigning things and having a closer look at some stuff. Right. And then there were some. There were like two polyps that were that turned out to be benign, but he actually just cut them off and like. Oh, in the process. Yeah. The tools so, already right there. So like through the-, the tube is a light and a camera, but also the ability to slide tools through that tube. And then one of those tools was basically like a little wire, like a, almost like a little wire lasso. And it just oh, okay. lassoed this little polyp and cut it off and then pulled it back. And so, and then set, got sent off to the lab for analysis. Magic. Wow. So there we go. The magic of polyps. I more, how uh, got down this road. More, more butt talk than we thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, actually, as long as we're doing shit talk, let's keep it. Let's well, keep we it started blue. with fecal transplants. Yeah. Uh, and do you then wanna... I said I wanted to see other people's shit. Yeah. <laughs> as long as we're as long as we're in the in the um, gross stuff, do you want to talk about uh, dinosaur sex? Yeah. Or not? 
That sounds like a no. <laughs> yeah, no, I I'm definitely do. Uh, that was brought up last week by past guest of the show and past writer and current writer on the sh- on the Jim Jeffries show, Curtis Cook. Yeah, how do how, we were wondering how do those uh, excuse me how does like a T Rex or any of those giant tail dinosaurs how would the how did the actual mechanics of of sex for them work out? And we got an email from Rachel Korinek linking to a Daily Mail article from 2012. Uh, titled The Joy of T-Rex. Oh, so awful. Scientists show you how dinosaurs had sex. Tricky when you weigh 30 tons and one crucial part is 12 feet long. Paleontologists answer many tricky questions about dinosaurs, but perhaps the most interesting is how did 30-ton animals larger than four-story buildings have sex? A surprising amount of research has been devoted to the subject, and most researchers have concluded that dinosaurs made love like dogs. Also, made love... Okay. Um, this is the Daily Mail article, right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Might try and find yeah. a non-Daily Mail link for it for the, the, for well, the, the show pi- notes. The pictures are great because there are artists' renderings of uh, a bunch of different, uh, like brontosaurus, or I guess not brontosaurus, those don't exist. Uh, Sora. Wait, what's a Sora Poseidon? Is that like an apatosaur relative? Anyways, artist rendering is a bunch of dinosaurs fucking. Was that um, the brontosaurus? So brontosauruses don't exist. Oh, right. That's right. Right? Isn't yeah. that two different Was kinds that the long of... neck? the long neck? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all dinosaurs used used the same basic position to mate, said Dr. Beverly Halstead, an English researcher who was one of the first to tackle the subject. Mounting from the rear, he put his forelimbs on her shoulders, lifting one hind limb across her back and twisting his tail under hers. Uh, scientific illustrators have also attempted to capture the intriguing rituals of the huge beasts, including an illustrator who worked with Dr. Halstead on a magazine article in 1988. The physical challenges involved must have been formidable. The penis of a Tyrannosaurus is estimated to be around 12 feet long. Uh, Christy Curry Rogers, assistant professor of biology and geology at McAllister College in Minnesota, told the Discovery Channel, the most likely position to have intercourse to have intercourse is for the male behind the female and on top of her and from behind any other position is unfathomable. So I guess the answer is just like the tail goes to the side, sort of. Uh... Dr. Gregory M. Erickson says, I don't think there's much doubt about that. He's an evolutionary biologist at FSU. Um, He said, it must have been a hell of a thing to see. (laughs) Some experts have questioned this line of thinking and suggested that dinosaurs romped in water. Biologist Stuart Landry believes that big dinosaurs would just fall over on land and would have needed water to provide support. So maybe that's the case. They walked out in the middle of the ocean and just went to town. Yeah, but these pictures are amazing. Like the... Pentaceratops, which I hadn't heard of before, but I guess has five instead of three horns, uh, really showing his O face in this picture, <laughs> going for it. These are really graphic. I mean, not not that graphic. They don't show, you know, they don't show dinosaur junk, but they show uh, the dinosaur faces are worth. It's worth clicking on the link that you will find over on the Squarespace powered probably science.com. I thought the non brontosaurus one was my favorite, or the, the whatever brontosaurus is. Oh, yeah, just now, the way he's like cocking his head back. Just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That hey, is pure ecstasy. You know what else is on the probably science website? What's that? The donation button. Oh, did we get some donations this week? Uh, we did get some donations this week. We got a one off uh, generous donation from Jeffrey Gelback who uh, also sent in a uh, story about um, The Principles of Curiosity short film. I couldn't find that story, though, did you? Uh, Yeah, I found it. Uh, Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid podcast is trying to get a short film going and has got a GoFundMe thing at principlesofcuriosity.com. But uh, he sent a donation as well. Thank you, um, Jeffrey. And then recurring monthly donations from David Wirth's Peter Long, Destruction Lane, 
Kate Birch, uh, thank you very much, you. Thank you, uh, James Cox, generous donation there. And as always, uh, Justin Bro, this is very generous of you every month as well as sending in some very great stories for us. Mm-hmm. So thank you, guys. And uh, if people want to send in those stories, they can either tweet at probably science or email probably science at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> do you want to? Keep... There's so many juvenile stories we could do this week. Uh, maybe we do one that isn't. And then we is, come back is this to... the Jupiter Moon story yeah, that I Sean mean, Gordon it's, it's, sent in? It's just a number based sex joke. Yeah. Yeah. You, you already now know how many moons <laughs> Jupiter has based on the guess. fact that Andy said number based sex joke. <laughs> Jupiter now has 69 moons. Uh, our local gas Ooh. giant has two more natural satellites added to its roster. All right. That's enough of that story. Yep. Next oh, one. 69 yeah. moons. All right. You pick one. <laughs> uh, I, I like This was one that I think Justin sent in. The Einstein's impossible experiment finally performed. The Hubble telescope just weighed a star using a technique that Einstein described, but said humanity would have no hope of using. Um... Hubble spied a star, a dead star, about 18 light years away, warping the light of a more distant star that appeared to pass behind it. Einstein predicted this effect would happen based on his general relativity theory, but he claimed scientists had no hope of actually seeing it. Uh, But he wrote that 60 years before humans launched uh, some pretty impressive hardware into Earth's orbit. So now Hubble has managed to witness the spectacle, and astronomers were able to read clues carried in the curved starlight and discern the mass of the dead star called Stein 2051b. The result perfectly matches a prediction of the star's mass made a century ago. Um, so, uh, Kailash Sahu of the Space Telescope Science Institute, who's the lead author of the report, said, I've been thinking of this problem for many years. We were not sure if we could succeed, but it was definitely worth trying. So the effect is called gravitational microlensing, and has been observed before using a much closer star, our own sun, as a lens, most notably during the solar eclipse of 1919. Uh, Arthur Eddington measured the positions of stars situated near the edge of the darkened sun, and he saw that our home star's gravity was tweaking that distant starlight, demonstrating that Einstein was correct with his theory of relativity. Um, So just to be clear, this is... uh, General relativity in Einstein predicts um, that mass affects the actual weight of the Earth. The illustration that's normally used is if you imagine this rubber sheet that that is space, and each object in it uh is sitting on that rubber sheet so imagine like a heavy sphere sitting in that rubber sheet right and then tr- imagine trying to roll a marble from one end to the other the way it would curve around that thing because of where Be- the sheet goes down because of gravity in the model of gravity yeah i know that was always weird. slightly awkward <laughs> yeah. but um so when a star is in the way light will bend around it and the amount it's bent can will illustrate its mass so this is the way to theoretically measure the mass of a star and that's what they've done Uh, astronomers have used similar techniques to detect exoplanets and clumps of otherwise invisible dark matter which bend light light coming from background objects and they've used entire clusters of galaxies as lenses to watch faraway stars explode over and over again Um, but until now no one had caught one small star in the act of bending light from another that's the scenario Einstein laid out in a 1936 paper also published in science, which he suggested would be near impossible to see. Uh, and he, he, only, he published this on a dare? Basically. Yeah, he published it because a, a mate of his suggested it. Some time ago, R.W. Mandel paid me a visit and asked me to publish the results of a little calculation which I had made at his request. This note complies with his wish. <laughs> and nothing more. <laughs> yeah. Happy now, asshole? Yeah. Uh, to find the right stellar alignment, Sahu and his team searched through roughly 5,000 possible stars that could act as lenses before identifying this one. 
The cosmic object is a white dwarf, the small, dense corpse of a star that was once similar to the sun. Then came the harder part. The fortuitous alignment of two stars is one thing, but being able to observe it is another. As Sahu describes it, the amount by which the stars move on the sky is almost unbearably minuscule. Imagine a firefly moving from one side of a US quarter to the other side, and you have to detect this movement from 1,500 miles away. Second, there is a bright light bulb, the white dwarf, next to the firefly, and you have to detect the small movement of the firefly in the glare of the bright light bulb. Jesus. Uh, he applied for time to use... Uh, as This National Geographic's very floral with their language humanity's sharpest eye in the sky mm. <laughs> and once approved he put the starry pair in Hubble's crosshairs eight times between October 2013 and October 2015 and sure enough uh, the gravity the star's gravity curved and displaced the light beyond based on that deviated light the team could calculate the white dwarf's mass at about 68% of the mass of the sun and 1% as wide it almost precisely matches a theory proposed by uh, uh, Subramanian Chandrasekhar in 1930 that describes the quantum mechanical interactions between atoms and the cores of stars. Uh, yeah, his theory predicts the radius of the white dwarf decreases as the mass increases in a specific way, and our measurement precisely confirmed that. So it's like two things confirmed at the same time. Right, yeah, yeah. That's pretty impressive. It also suggests that contrary to earlier guesses, it does not have an iron core, something that would suggest that the star is as old or older than the universe. In other words, this little white dwarf is the most normal, boring, dead star imaginable, <laughs> and scientists are thrilled. <laughs> How could it be older than the universe? That doesn't seem Wait, like Wait, is that a typo? <clears throat> they imagine I, I guess, the I guess that would have... If it had an iron core... It then that be. would have counteracted what we know oh, about oh, the universe. Oh, okay. I Maybe it's part of the reason why we know it's not the case. Yeah. Einstein would be proud. Terry Oswald of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University says in a statement, one of his key predictions has passed a very rigorous observational test. And this uh, article is riddled with ads for the upcoming uh, Jeffrey Rush Einstein thing. Genius. Starting Tuesdays. <laughs> Are you going to watch that? Uh... Probably not, just because yeah, I have too many things. Yeah, that's true. It's, still haven't finished The Handmaid's Tale, still haven't even started on American Gods. Oh yeah, yeah. American Gods, that's what I've been meaning to watch. I haven't seen any of this I'm way behind Better on Better Call Saul, yeah. It's too many things. And you haven't seen Fargo at all, you said, right? I've seen a couple of episodes. Season yet, I, I can't believe that isn't your top priority. Yeah. Dude, it's so fucking good. It's Everyone's got to watch Fargo. Yeah, I, I have a Fargo mug. They're amazing. You have a Fargo mug? Yeah. Like from the city of Fargo? or uh... No, from the screening of uh, screening oh, okay. of one episode of Fargo. Nice, nice. That I went to. So I've seen one episode from the middle of the most recent season. Oh, okay. <laughs> what a thrill that must yeah. have been. <laughs> you know, how the show's meant to be watched. It actually was still very good. And they had a, like, a little catch-up thing beforehand, so you knew who everyone was and what was uh, going on. I'm still obsessed with uh, Carrie Coon from The Leftovers. Were you watching Leftovers? No, but she's also the police yeah, chief in, in Fargo. Fargo. Yeah, she's so good. Everyone's so good. Like the people you haven't heard of are almost better than the like stunt casting famous people. You know, yeah, every season. I was obsessed with the guy who plays the Native American guy from season two, Hansi. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And whoever played the main tough um, from season two, also the black guy. What's his name? God damn, he was good. Oh, the sort of proper. The, he has the two. He has the twin henchmen. Oh, Bokeem Woodbine. What else was he in? He uh, he's been in tons of stuff. I can't offhand name one of them, but I think that's who it was. Yeah, he was 
the best thing in in that which I think is the best season of the show. Mike Milligan is the character. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why we've got on this topic, but fucking watch Fargo and watch uh, what else? Silicon Valley. I'm hooked on right now. Oh, I'm I'm one episode behind on that, but I've been mostly I've been enjoying that. Features a couple of alums of the podcast. As yeah, well. <laughs> I forget sometimes that TJ did the elaborate like in, intro of my name that I should be using as my ringtone. Probably. <laughs> Do you I, oh, that? that's right. It was like three or four years ago. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll see if I can like cut that up and put it on SoundCloud or something. Um, I want to do this suntan story that because uh, we haven't even got time for one more story that Adam Broman on Twitter tweeted in that scientists have developed a drug that mimics sunlight to make the skin tan with no damaging UV radiation involved. Unbelievable! So it's like a sort of automatic, which I've always thought should be possible because like you're not gaining energy from the sun when you get a suntan. All you all you're doing is the sun hits your skin and then some mechanism is triggered that makes tanning happen. Right. That makes melanin uh, be produced. So this drug tricks the skin in, into producing the brown form of the pigment melanin in the test on skin samples and mice. Evidence suggests it will work even on redheads who normally just burn in the sun. All right, BBC. <laughs> Uh, even I on mean, those stupid redheads, <laughs> can't even muster even, a burn. Yeah, don't even know how to tan, tan properly, stupid <laughs> redheads, with your freckles that almost become a suntan if you get enough of them in one yeah. go. I bet you could overdose on those tan pills and just change your race entirely. I will. <laughs> Maybe this is what we need to get to real post-race America. That was yeah. like a Sneetches style mix-up where like everybody has this stuff, right? And then you end up, no one remembers what they exactly. started off as. And yeah, they're everyone. secretly slipped into like Advil bottles around the way. I like it. I like it. <laughs> That'll speed up the 2046 thing. Uh, what's the 2046 thing? By, oh, when by white people stop being white majority. people are the majority. Um, yeah. Um, the team at the Massachusetts General Hospital hoped that their discovery could prevent skin cancer and even slow the appearance of aging. Not actually slow aging, but the appearance of aging. I think no, basically they no, go for like the yeah. black don't crack. Serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would help skin cancer because you wouldn't have to go out and tan. Yeah. And uh, I, guess, I guess also if you... Um, Maybe you don't yeah, get as could, wrinkly. Because the sun does damage the skin yeah, and yeah. cause more wrinkles. But if you can tan without any of that, then yeah, I guess that is what they mean by that. Where the, are we at in the sunscreen debate now in the world? Whether it's is safe or not? Any, yeah. Is there any school of thought that says it's bad for you? Yeah, there. I would always read articles that was like sunscreen is bad. and what? You have to bump. Yeah. I feel like that was, the... there was a whole time where it was like sunscreen is not actually helpful. You just shouldn't go out in the sun at all. But sunscreen sometimes makes it worse. And this is how far you get these things? <laughs> Ariana, yeah, Ariana would come by your desk like this Ariana new story about this sunscreen. Yes. What do you think about this? Yes, we have to promote this. I work for an anti-sunscreen company. <laughs> Here's some baklava. <laughs> uh, Wait, are we racist right now? I don't know. That is how she talked, okay. and she did like baklava. <laughs> that is not offensive. Oh, you did? You met her? Oh, many times. Really? She would email me in the middle of the night what? demanding insane stories about crazy things i had no idea if she was hands-on or if she was well, just she would the be name. hands off for a while and then like uh, she would remember you exist suddenly and have you do like a million things i just like, had a thought oh. about humanoid robots yeah it would be like 2 a.m and she'd be like we need you to uh, write 2,000 words on female voters and i was like <laughs> what 
And then be like, get to work. How many people did she have that kind of relationship with? Like, how big is the core uh, I mean, staff at the time? Or- there was like probably 20 report, 25 reporters or something. Oh, I mean, this was like big. right when she they started doing reporting at HuffPost. Because before it was... I mean, she didn't usually communicate with me. Or she would like attach like my boss or something. But she was very demanding about oh. what whatever she wanted. What years was this about? This was 20... Like 2000. Nine through two thousand twelve or thirteen ish, and when did it start? Probably like oh uh, six. Okay, maybe I don't know when it started. Somewhere around there. Interesting. I just sort of thought she slapped her name Might on this thing and then that. and then went on to other projects or something. I don't. I don't well, know why. Well, for I thought that. no, no, she was. She had her big office in the middle of the thing, and she was. She was around. I mean, she wanted to be super hands on. Yeah, um, yeah. She was always off. You know, telling people to sleep more. Which was sort of her whole thing. Oh, really? That's oh, that's like right. I remember that was a thing. Well, it's still her deal. She like has a website now that's... She left Huffington Post, and now she just wants... To, her whole thing is like, take naps, unplug. Oh, and the dot-com boom, and uh, there were like... There was like a... Pill, but, that yeah. was the great irony of that place, was it was like Huffington Post play was, too. foosball. You could, you just, like if, if anyone ever went to the pillow room and napped, it'd be like, what the fuck? You'd probably yeah. be fired right away. But <laughs> That yeah. was the great irony of that place, was it was like Ariana's emails at 2 o'clock in the morning or something, and then like <laughs> demand in one day to write 3,000 words, and then it was like, please unplug and enjoy our nap rooms. <laughs> I would be in there every day, and I would last one. I did take job. a lot of naps in the nap pods. Did they have she like kind of had to after being woken up at two a.m.? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like a pod. It was like a. It looked like see. It was like a you know a white pod, and you pulled a thing over, and then it played like spacey music. And would it be like a fifteen minute power nap? Then it like lightens, yeah. opens up, so it yeah. turns you, yeah, wakes you, you up. You put a timer on it, oh, and okay. then it like ends, and you get up. I, I want one of these. I'm picturing the thing that Mork gets into in Mork and Mindy. Is that kind of what it is? It looks like a like an egg. Yeah, which yeah. is sort of a, right. I'm, now I'm dating myself that I know things. Mark, from Mark and, and Mindy. Mindy. <laughs> oh Christ! You know, it's like it's a bit like the thing from the Honeymooners. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know the Colgate Comedy Hour. <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> you yeah. you've all seen Train Going Into Tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> man, man running in profile. <laughs> Naked man running in profile. <laughs> My favorite movie. It's a good date for <laughs> yeah. That's come up on the show before. Just the, the, just the <laughs> ultimate the hipster move, just pretending that's your favorite <laughs> film. <laughs> like, Naked man running in profile. <laughs> I just love that film. It's my favorite. Yeah, that, so much better than Shawshank. That second shot when he's running naked and he's in profile still. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, so UV light makes the skin tan the skin tan by causing damage. This chain kicks off a chain of chemical reactions in the skin that ultimately leads to dark melanin, the body's natural sh- sunblock being made. The drug is rubbed into the skin to skip the damage and kickstart the process of making melanin. Dr. David Fisher, one of the researchers, told BBC News website, it has a potent darkening effect. There's, a, there's an illustration of this. I presume this is on my skin. But under the microscope, it's the real melanin. It really is activating the production of the pigment in a UV-independent fashion. And, yeah, there's a sort of picture here of, like, that's definitely a darker patch of skin. It's a markedly different approach to fake tan, which paints the skin without the protection from melanin. Uh, sunbeds, which expose the skin to UV light or pills that claim to boost melanin production but still need UV light. But the team is not motivated by making a new cosmetic. Uh, Dr. Fisher said the lack of progress in skin cancer, 
the most common type of cancer, was a very significant frustration. Um, Our real goal is a novel strategy for protecting the skin from UV radiation and cancer. Dark pigment is associated with a lower risk of all forms of skin cancer. That would be really huge. So tests detailed in the journal Cell Reports have shown the melanin produced by the drug was able to block harmful UV rays. Eventually, mm-hmm. eventually, the scientists want to combine their drug with sun cream to give maximum protection from solar radiation. Uh, Dr. Fisher said, everyone should absolutely use sun creams, but its weakness was that it keeps you pale. The way the, <laughs> the, way the drug works could also allow a ginger tan as the genetic mutation that causes red ha- hair and fair skin disrupts the normal process where UV light leads to duck melon. I didn't know that. I didn't either, yeah. Um, It's not yet clear if the drug might have the unintended consequence of affecting the glorious hair color, but it is thought the hair follicle is too deep in the skin for the drug to reach. But whether you're ginger, blonde, or brunette, the drug is not yet ready for commercial use. They w- yeah, the research. But whatever you are, you don't get it. <laughs> yeah, the researchers want to do more safety testing, although so far there's been no hint of problems. Uh... And Matthew Gass from the British Association of Dermatologists said the study was a novel approach to protecting, uh, preventing skin cancer. He added, a lot more research has to be done before we see this sort of technology being used on humans. However, it is certainly an interesting proposition. Skin cancer rates in the UK are going through the roof. Any research into ways we can prevent them from developing skin cancer is to be welcome. Uh, and it may also slow the uh, appearance of aging. Um... Many people say the obvious and most dramatic sign of aging is what the skin looks like, and even casual UV damage over the years causes damage. Uh, medically, it's very difficult to focus on, but if, if it's tremendously safe, then it could keep the skin healthier for longer. I wonder, does it affect the time that it takes for a tan to go away? Because I don't actually know the mechanism behind why tans go away if you're just producing melanin, or why people who just have darker skin from birth... Why it's all it's all melanin based, right? They just do they just keep producing more, or does the melanin they have just stay in the skin? And people who have temporary sun tans, it goes away. Or I don't know. Why I'm asking you guys. Is uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I I wanted to find a different version of the story because I read about this the other day as well, and I there was there was a potential downside of it that suggested you should only really use it in the summer. And I'm trying to find it. Remember what that was. Um, oh, I'm guessing maybe like does it inhibit vitamin D stuff? So you'll get more like if you're already if you're already not getting much sun in the winter, you might get seasonal affective disorder. I'm just guessing. Uh, it wasn't that, but that might also be a thing. I just read a thing that vitamin D is like the most overdiagnosed supplement in the country or something because of those kind of disorders. Yeah. People think that that's the the solution to everything. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, I can't find I can't find out what that was. There was a there was an extra little story that um. That was like, hey, uh, not all good. So only maybe use when you're going to likely be exposed to the sun. Uh, if I find that, I will tell you what it is next week. Ooh, but if you know a potential, I know, very exciting. I don't know. Would you t- would you do that? Would you would you darken your skin with this sort of skin darkening instant suntan? The the chemical aspect of it seems iffy to me. But I don't know. I guess people, you know, do tanning beds and everything but yeah but i've never wanted to do a tanning bed yeah. and just the idea of that i find weird I, you know, but, but if it's if it could get to the point that right, right now it's topical right all the things they're talking about they're talking about putting them in a cream it's not something you No, would, i think it's a pill and a cream is what it sounds like to if me. there was a pill i could take and then not have to put on 
I would still put on sunscreen, but not have to put on as much because I do spend a lot of time outside and I'm sure I'm doing damage to myself for that. So yeah, I would take a pill or no, fuck it. No, I would do, as long as it was safe and it had gone through trials, I would do any kind of this mostly for the protective effects. No, though. Then you see like the people who live the longest are the people who are outside the most. You know, it's always like those blue zones are always like Costa Rica and they're always outside with machetes and you know, outside all day. Are you sure the machete people are the longest living people? I don't know. <laughs> they're the ones machete the ownership might be correlated with slightly shorter lives. You know, they're no. juggling knives. Yeah. And they're, yeah, they're outside wor- working and they live for, for a long time. I don't know if Costa Rica has as, has as good of a no blue zone. They live a lot. They live a super long. What is time. the blue zone? That's like the you know the the water's really healthy and so oh. it corresponds to they're drinking know, ocean water. Longevity. <laughs> that, that they're drinking the ocean water. <laughs> that is interesting. I never thought of that. No, the the like you know the natural water there yeah. is really healthy, but also people just term. live a long time. Yeah, I know. Like people say, we should be copying. Okinawa, which is all fresh fish and stuff, like they have the most centenarians, I think. And um, I always think of that. There was like a New York Times article about a guy who had cancer and went to like an island in Greece, and cancer went away, and all these people on this one island or ta- I forget it was a town or an island like live super long time. It's all yeah. just all like making their own food, and you know nothing is from outside the island, and you know, okay, yeah, blues unity. I'd never heard this Blue Zones term before. Um, five regions in Europe, Latin America, Asia, and the U.S. are these Blue Zones. Um, What's yeah, the people, U.S. one? Um, I'm just skimming this article on NPR. I'm not seeing the Americas one. But there's tips. Like, stop eating when your stomach is 80% full to avoid weight gain. How do you know? Like, it's not a fuel tank. What the fuck? <laughs> Eat the smallest meal of the day in the late afternoon or evening. That's pretty common yeah. sense, I guess. Eat mostly plants, especially beans. Eat the beans. smallest meal of the day in the late afternoon? Or evening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I only found out recently that you're supposed to eat the largest meal at lunch and the smaller meal at dinner. Did not know that. I mean, it's not but like, I, I find that to be... But that ruins me for the day if I eat yeah, a large I, meal I, at lunch. I find that hard just... I mean, we're, doing, we're writing at the moment. We've got brain work to do in the afternoon. And yeah. if I have a massive heavy lunch, then... At least we sort of, we normally have lunch around one to two. Then from like two to four, I'm useless. Right? Yeah, because you're kind of tired. I might be. I get a little bit of a second wind around four thirty, five o'clock. But otherwise, yeah, you just That's can't when you do need that. To pop a few tanning pills. <laughs> <laughs> really make your body go crazy. Um, oh, to answer your question about where the U.S.'s blue zone is, this is not what I expected. Do you know where Loma Linda is? No, where's that? It's like seventy miles directly east of here, up by oh. San Bernardino. And it just what? happens. I know. What? Yeah, it's uh No. <laughs> this NPR story says we're shocked to learn this as you are. Its members are Seventh day Adventists who shun smoking, drinking, and dancing. Uh, so dancing's maybe dancing. And they avoid TV, movies, and other media distractions. They also follow a bil- biblical diet focused on grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables, and drink only water. Sugar is taboo too. Man, this uh what a life. not worth it. Not worth it long. We need to get Kevin Bacon in there. Wait, I'm not sure I wait, get what? it. But... What oh, hang on. Kevin I'm getting Bacon? movie people. Hang on, wait. Hang on, who was Footloose? That was wrong. Kevin Bacon. Oh, no, oh, the dancing. It is. Yeah, oh, yeah, the yeah. dancing. I'm thinking of I Love Dick, which I also just started watching and I also just stopped watching. <laughs> Have you guys watched I Love <laughs> no, Dick I at all? Started yet. I don't know. Couldn't get into it. It's a little uh, little artsy. little unnecessarily... Uh, it's a little pretentious. Yeah. Um, Loma Linda. Well, Loma some- Linda. 
That's am- fascinating. Oh, well, so it's mostly because they don't just drink or do anything bad. They're like... Yeah, so I mean, I think we all know if we did all those things, we'd live a little longer. But we want we want to find like the in between. Yeah, but still- like, I kind of met- the woman who lives to 105, and they're like, "What's your secret?" She's like, "Whiskey." Right. Yeah. I have one breath. cigarette a day. We just <laughs> the Onion did it perfectly. Like, just like world's oldest woman attributes longevity to random chance. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it is like you just try to extrapolate from a sample size of one, which yeah. by definition the world's oldest person has happens to be. Yeah. You, know, you obviously, it's just the person who it just slipped right. through it. It was the lucky, the one game where you get the high score, like the one lucky move. Yeah. Or it's like the smoker who always has the one story about, yeah, my great uncle lived to be. It's like, well, yeah, that's one dude. You yeah. Know, there's going to be. Or your, your friend's cousin who wasn't wearing a seatbelt and got, <laughs> got thrown free. Thrown free. I and never la- wear a seatbelt in my car. Yeah. Cause, and la- like landed on a couch that was by the side <laughs> of the road. <laughs> and that's why you never wear a seatbelt. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you look at the statistics of really? just on average, the yeah. actuarial tables of the people. Up, up, up. Nope. The couch. <laughs> Always <laughs> rear end a truck shipping styrofoam peanuts. And <laughs> You're guaranteed. Guaranteed to be safer. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Lucas, where can our listeners find out more about you and the things you do? Oh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at LucasCavner at. Nice. Uh, or LucasCavner.com or watch the Jim Jeffrey show. Just uh-huh. guess which words both of us have written. Uh, you tend to be more of the adjectives, right? Yeah, yeah. I go adjectives, a couple <laughs> adverbs occasionally if we're, you know, having a good day. Yeah. But you're a noun guy. and I, I am a that. noun guy. I do... Although not a proper noun guy. No, never. Wouldn't be caught dead with one of those. Yeah. <laughs> All the proper nouns are added in post. It is funny that that's the question people ask the most after. It's like, which one's yours? I'm like, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, like, because a lot of it. At a certain point, it's like, well, like if you guys have... a few premises I can kind of yeah. go with mine, or like a few yeah. turns of phrase, and then so much of it ends up being team written. Or, right. or like, you know, this is mine, but it's not really mine because the wording of my that I sent in is completely different to what ended up on the screen. Yeah, totally. So did you guys both get your foot in the door as just like conjunction guys to start off with? Yeah, it was ands and buts. Uh, well, you came from the improv well, so there was a lot of ands in you. <laughs> yeah, it was just mostly and, 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 and. Um, and mostly other people's suggestions that helped me. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. yeah. Was- I'm going to need uh, three field piece ideas for the Jim <laughs> Jeffrey show. Who has one? <laughs> Shout it out and we'll start our thing. <laughs> Oh my god, I would love to see an improv team get that specific. <laughs> Just like, you got a packet, dude, don't you? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting to I need a location, an item, and a topical monologue joke. <laughs> Approximately two lines long. <laughs> and something goofy to get my foot in the door. I need a best man speech. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got started, best man speech. Yeah, I think most people get their start yeah. with a really yeah. good wedding I do speech. know someone who was hired on a show, like he was at a writer friend's wedding, and what? someone else was there, and he gave a great speech, and he got hired on I, something. I actually, the, there's a fam- there's a relatively well-known example of that in the UK, but um, Ed Byrne, who was already a very established comic, mm-hmm. uh, he was already someone who played theatres and has a fan base, uh, but he's best friends with this other comic, Dara O'Brien. Uh, who's a very successful comic in the UK and he hosts a, sh- a topical show called Mock the Week and for his best man speech he told some story of when Dara was staying at his and got drunk and ended up like naked like I can't remember how exactly panned out but it ended up with him basically talking to the police 
on the front doorstep of Ed's house whilst naked and hammered. <laughs> and he told that in the best man speech. And then the producer of what the week was like, you need to come on the show and tell that story as well. <laughs> that works. That's how but you yeah. do it. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure he's someone who needed a break because he was already playing theaters, but you know, so, you gigs a gig. you can get. Yeah. Gigs a gig. Uh, you can find us individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen and, of course, collectively at Probably Science. Oh, yeah. And can I plug... Um, yes. I almost forgot that T.J. Chambers and I, a friend of the show, T.J. Chambers and I, are starting up a podcast about uh, about twin films, like your Deep Impacts and Armageddon's. You know, you ever wonder, why is Ants coming out the same year as A Bug's Life? Why is there Dante's Peak and Volcano? Uh, a movie about that called... Uh, a podcast about that called Twinsies... Um, Give us a follow over at Twinsies Pod. The episodes aren't out yet, but I thought maybe if some listeners wanted to hear what we just recorded before we put it out as a regular episode, um, yeah, just hit us up. Actually, tweet at Probably Science and mention it, or even better, tweet at Twinsies Pod and um, mention that you want to hear it, and I'll send you a link to to it on SoundCloud, and you can see if it's something you want to listen to. The first episode is Ghoulies and Gremlins. They had to start with, like, you can't jump right into your... Uh, I'd never heard of Ghoulies. Well, Ghoulies was not a hit at all, but like I, I always remembered it because it was the most iconic VHS tape in Blockbuster for years. It's that green Ghoulie coming up out of the toilet. Oh, Does that yeah, sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it turns out it was rebranded as Ghoulies after Gremlins. It was going to be called Beasties, but then they're like, let's go two-syllable G word with an S. And, uh, <laughs> to confuse people. Yeah. And then even the uh, the cover was was something that like this editor... Um, pitched as an idea that wasn't a scene in the movie at all he's like what if you have this green thing coming up out of the toilet and the log line is they're gonna eat your ass which, <laughs> that got changed to they'll get you in the end which is a better little more subtle <laughs> it's a little less on the yeah. nose um and then they they decided to do compromise. that and then after the fact they went back and shot an extra scene of one coming out of the toilet to justify the poster and the yeah, yeah. they're so. gonna all right i got it they're gonna get you in the end well okay but how about uh they're going <laughs> they're to bite your anus your with their monster mouths <laughs> uh so yeah we watched both those movies and talked about the similarities and differences and uh i think it's a fun idea obviously because i'm doing it so yeah hit us up on twitter at probably science and mention at twinsies pod and i'll send you a link if you want to listen to it and yeah follow you do a live show as well right cool uh yeah, I do uh, Baby Wants Candy on UCB at UCB on Fridays at 7.30. And uh, the reunion in uh, L.A. at Bar Lubitsch uh, the second Tuesday of every month. It's a oh, character cool. show that's based around a reunion of some kind, like a high school or a college or an office or a cult awesome. that disbanded. So Los Angeles people go and see Lucas perform and also check out the Jim Jeffrey show every Tuesday uh, on Comedy Central and on some of your respective channels in various other countries. (laughs) Bye. Bye.